Father, I'd help, I pray that you would help us to pause in your presence with open Bibles together to think very, very seriously about the words we've just read this morning. Help us to learn something new, something that shapes us to be the kind of believers you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to look at the third commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, or you otherwise stated you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. To get some context, I would like us to start by talking about the problem of anti-discrimination laws. Take Pakistan for an example today. Pakistan is one of the countries in the world with the worst, most destructive anti-blasphemy laws in the world. I'll read from them. One law says, quote, deliberate, and it defines what uh, blasphemy is. It is uh, the deliberate and malicious acts intended to outrage religious feelings of any class by insulting its religion or religious belief. Now, in Pakistan, the uh, blasphemy laws carry the death penalty. People are put to death for not following their anti-blasphemy laws. Uh, there are quite a few people now on death row in Pakistan. But quite often, it does not go that far because blasphemy is seen as such an important crime that uh, many people are murdered uh, even before there's a trial. It's so important that if someone is accused of blasphemy, they may be murdered for that, even if the fact has not yet been proven. That's why anti-discrimination laws today are some of, one of the causes of the worst persecution, religious persecution, and religiously motivated violence there is in the world. Uh, Anti-blasphemy laws cause a lot of ugliness. Now, I want us to keep that in mind as we look at this commandment, because we have to, when we think of the third commandment, a question that comes to mind naturally is, are we merely looking at an old-fashioned Jewish version of an anti-blasphemy law? Um, now, keep in mind that in ancient Israel, there were anti-blasphemy laws, and they were sometimes enforced, though probably not very often. As we look at the Old Testament, the pattern we see is they had a lot of laws that were probably rarely, if ever, enforced. Uh, the anti-blasphemy law may have been only rarely enforced, but it was on at least one occasion. So is what we need today, if we were to respond to this commandment, merely a kinder and more gentle way of having anti-blasphemy laws among us as Christians? When I was a uh, child, perhaps eight or nine years old, I had a school teacher who, if one of the school kids spoke impolitely, used improper terminology in the classroom, they had their mouth washed out with soap. Now, that's a lot more gentle than stoning or execution for blasphemy. So is that what we want? Just a little bit kinder, gentler way of enforcing anti-blasphemy laws? Now, surely this commandment condemns the thoughtless misuse of God's name. Uh, to talk about God without being careful, careful about what we say is surely wrong. But uh, we New Testament believers don't think that there should be any laws that have to do with you know, something like this because they're always connected with misuse. Uh, it leads to specific laws about discrimination, about, I mean, about anti-defamation and so on almost always leads to discrimination and persecution. 
And as Christians, we do not want to see the power of the state used to enforce religious beliefs. That has happened at times among Christians, and it was a terrible mistake. But uh, what is this commandment about? What do we do with it? Now, like many of the commandments, I think this one is designed to engage us in serious reflection. It's designed to force us to think about it. If we're not to misuse God's name, not to take his name in vain, what are we supposed to do? Instead, what does it mean? Well, if we go to a standard Hebrew dictionary and look up the term, the name of the Lord, Shem Yahweh in Hebrew, it refer it's very clear that it's referring to the person of God, that misusing the name of God is not just poor terminology or inappropriate speech, it's a misunderstanding of who God is or referring to God in a way that does not correspond to who he is. That's in the standard Old Testament dictionary, Hebrew dictionary. Uh, when I was a university professor, I sometimes had uh, students in my classes who were Jewish. And they were very, very careful, some of them, about how they referred to God. Some of them would never use the word God in speaking. They would make some allusion to God, but never use the term God. And in their student papers, they would never write G-O-D. They would write G dash or hyphen or understroke D, or in some other way, put three, three symbols there that indicated it was a reference to God without ever even typing G-O-D in a student paper. They were, some Jews were very, very careful about that. Maybe we should learn that though that's not the way we should go, but yet to be careful in how we refer to God. Now, in our, our Protestant tradition, the Westminster Shorter Catechism from oh, the 1640s gives a little broader explanation of what this commandment requires. It says, quote, the commandment requires the holy, reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. Quite a mouthful, but very thoughtful. They saw that the commandment requires that we really think about and consider who God is and what he has given us and all that we say about him. But for some of the Ten Commandments, there is an event in the book of Exodus that explains what the commandment is about in greater detail. And we saw that last week when we looked at the second commandment, that we saw that the, the golden calf story told in Exodus 32 explains the, the second commandment. And to the, understand the third commandment that we're considering today, we should turn to Exodus 33 and 34, the passage that was read for us a few moments ago. Because here we see a definition of the name of God. To get the setting, the events related to the golden calf had been overwhelming for Moses. He was discouraged. He didn't know how he could go on. How could he lead this people of God into the new land if the first thing they do after they're free is they worship a God that took along from Egypt? You know, they probably worship calves and bulls in Egypt, and now they get out in the freedom, and they say, this bull or this calf is who led you out of Egypt. Oh, my. Moses was overwhelmed. How could he go on? And he needed a higher level of assurance that God was with him and would help him with what he had to do. So Moses pleaded with God. We saw it there. He, said, he pleaded, God, show me your glory. Well, God did not show Moses' glory exactly. At least he did not give Moses exactly what he asked for. God said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. But 
Instead of letting Moses see his face, God said, quote, I will proclaim my, Lord, my name, the Lord, in your presence. He's going to tell him his name. Now, after all the special preparations had been completed, including making new Ten Commandments, new tablets for the Ten Commandments, God did what he had promised to Moses. We're told, quote, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, note this, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This here is the name of the Lord, the name of God that we are to honor. It shows God in some of his complexity. It shows us a God who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, but, in the big but, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, if we want to fulfill this third commandment, not take the Lord's name in vain, but to really talk properly about God, this is what we have to do. Not only stop using bad language, uh, we have to teach ourselves and consciously work on understanding God in his complexity. That God is the God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, but he's also the God who does not leave sin unpunished. This commandment, in this way, goes against some of the deepest tendencies we have inside us as human beings. You see, it's, it, because of sin, we inevitably portray God one-sidedly. We think about one side of his character or the other side of his character. Uh, and we seldom get it right. This, in this commandment, if we follow it, I believe, will lead us to something that's beautiful rather than something that is ugly. The anti-blasphemy laws that I talked about a few moments ago lead to some of the ugliest situations in the world today. Uh, murder, death, hatred, violence. The opposite that we see here of honoring God's name, if we really do this, I think it leads to something that is beautiful and attractive, that will entice people. This will be something that's authentic, that has real humanity to it. As a student uh, many years ago, I read some of the, the German romantic poet Heinrich Heine from the uh, first half of the 19th century. What was more striking about him than his poetry is something that he said on his deathbed. Now, Heine must have prepared this carefully. He was sick for a long time and uh, must have thought carefully about what he wanted to be the last things he said before he died. And he was a well-known public figure. So very carefully he said just before his death, God will forgive me. It's his job. Now, to see the contrast, I'd invite you to consider the young Martin Luther, who lived about 300 years before Heinrich Heine. Before Martin Luther discovered the gospel by means of studying the Bible, before Luther understand, understood justification by faith alone, Luther was terribly afraid of God. When, he, when Luther heard thunder or saw lightning, he thought he saw the wrath of God at work. His first thought about God is that was God was, was that God was using the lightning or the thunder to punish his sins. Luther, until he discovered the gospel in the Bible, 
thought God's primary job is to punish sin. Notice the contrast. Heine says God's, it's God's job to forgive. Luther, before he understood the Bibles, it's God's job to punish. Most of us come to God with one of those inclinations in our heart. Most of us have a one-sided view of God. Think about it. Probably you find that in yourself. You have a one-sided view of God. Uh, it's very rare when anyone embraces the full name of God as God revealed himself to Moses. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, but who does not fail to punish sin. So most of us, and most of the world around us who aren't believers yet, have the same problem of a one-sided view of God. It's the normal condition of fallen human beings, that we misrepresent God in our own minds, and we misrepresent God to other people as well. Properly understood, this third commandment teaches us that we need to overcome, really recover from, this sickness of heart and mind that represents God in a one-sided manner. We have to see who God is as he has revealed himself. He is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. He also is the God who does not fail to punish sin. The name of the God is what we see, in fact, in the previous story about the golden calf. When the people of God mixed their worship of God with pagan worship of a calf, God became angry and punished them. People died. God is a holy God who punishes sin. But then he forgave them their sin and even consented to be obviously present in the midst of them. He abounds in love, forgives wickedness. We see this complex character of God throughout the Bible during the era of the judges. Time and again, the people sinned against God and God punished. But then they repented and they were restored. This was the biggest event of this was probably the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. They had a history of sinning and rejecting God. God finally sent the army of Babylon and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the city was destroyed. That means homes, businesses, families, their temple, everything was destroyed. Many people were killed and there, most of the survivors were taken as prisoners to Babylon. But then something like 70 years later, they repented. God sent them back to Israel to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. God was visibly present with them again. And above all, we see the name of God displayed at the cross. In his holiness, God demanded full payment and satisfaction for all of our sins. But in his love, he provided that payment himself at the price of going to the cross. The cross is the ultimate display of the name of God. These commandments, I've suggested again, time and again, are designed to engage us in a process of thinking, reflecting. As we do so, further with this commandment, let me remind us of a couple of principles I mentioned last week. That uh, people tend to become like the object of their worship. Remember, we saw that in one of the previous commandments. And I also suggested that worshiping God is, as who he really is is what makes us more fully human. As we become more like God whom we worship, we are transformed to be more like the proper image in which he made us. We are restored to implementing and demonstrating the image of God in which he created us from the beginning. 
So if we properly worship God as who he is in this two-sided, complex nature, we will become more compassionate and gracious, abounding in love. But we also will become more conscious of sin and the dreadful consequences it brings. This is authentic spirituality. But it's also being authentically human in a way that people are looking for. What's, what does it really mean for people to be fully human? Here we see it. If we are able to practice this, living this out, that we not only worship a complex God, but that we demonstrate in our lives that we, true, like God, are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, but yet very aware of sin and its, its consequences. So let's think together about what this means for us in some different situations we live in. Uh, I have in mind how our relationship to God uh, affects what we do in relation to God, but in our various communities, but also in relationship to society. So let's think a minute about how knowing and understanding the complex character of God should influence our relationship with God. Now, think about prayer. What kind of God do you have in mind when you pray? Now, I have to confess, I'm not doing very well at this. Uh, when I pray, it's usually a rather short, Lord, help me with this, or Father, thank you for that. Uh, my prayers tend to be short, one, two sentences. And I honestly seldom stop to think very much about what God is like when I pray. I have something to learn here, I'm sure. But think about our worship together. When we gather together, I think one of the things we need to do, and this will really help us, is if we consciously we stop and think about the complex character of the God whom we worship together. Uh, we need to think about it. Give the grace, mercy, compassion of God, yet the fact that he does not sin. Uh, you know, we tend to come together to church, we're busy, harried. Uh, we probably should take the time to focus, even for a few moments, on remembering what is the God like, the God whom we worship? What is he like? Remember him in his complexity. It might really help us in our worship. But think about reading the Bible, whether we're reading the Bible alone or with our family or the small group or reading the Bible together here in church. What kind of expectations do we bring to the Bible as we read it? Um, I think that if we understand the complex character of God, we will have some expectations in our mind when we read the Bible. Because God is the one who does not forget sin, we find in the Bible commands and threats. That's part of how we should have to respond to the Bible, recognizing that there are commands and threats there. On the other hand, if we see that God is the God of compassion, grace, and mercy, abounding in love, we should expect to find promises that speak to the deepest needs in our hearts. So what, what do you have in mind? What do you expect when you pick up the Bible? Just a story or do we expect something that, we, that encounters us? But think about how we need to honor the complex name of God in our, the several communities in which we live our lives. Of course, there have been a few Christian mystics who have thought the way to honor God and to get to know God was to sit on a pole in the desert. There are not many of those today, but at times in Christian history, there have been Christian mystics who thought the right way to really honor God was to sit on a pole in the desert. Of course, you needed some, a support team to help you to do that. You couldn't do that really alone. You need someone to bring you food and water. But there were people who did that. I don't think any of us are going to be doing that. 
Uh, where do we invest most of our time? In several, the several communities most of us belong to. Think of being a family. The task of raising children. I have three children, all married, four grandchildren, none of them married. Um, what do, they're, they're sort of young now. What do children need from their parents, or in my case, grandparents? Uh, I believe that what children need is parents who exhibit this complex name of God in the way they carry on their relationships. Uh, just as some people think God is all about forgiveness, and other people think God is all about enforcing the rules, so too you see this among parents. Some parents are all about love and compassion and grace for their kids, but the other, another set of parents are all about the rules, enforcing the rules with the kids. They can be very harsh. I think what children need from you as parents is this complex mix, uh, being abounding in love, overwhelming in compassion, slow to anger, but never forgetting there are rules that, that are there, they're real, that have consequences. Think about school, and some of you are school teachers. I, I was a university professor for a long time. Uh, what do children, or even university students, need most deeply from their teachers? I believe children need uh, teachers who exhibit in practice the complex name of God. Now, in my lifetime, I saw the, I've seen the pendulum swing. When I was a young boy, uh, teachers were taught to be firm, to lay down the rules, make sure there was discipline and order in the classroom. But by the time I was a university student a few years later, what they were telling the future teachers is that students need unconditional positive regard and let them find their own rules if there are any rules anywhere to be found. The pendulum has swung completely in the opposite direction. Just like it's completely up, pendulum swings in how people view God. Is God all about grace and forgiveness? Does he forgive because it's his job? Or does he judge people because that's his job? So too in education. But what do people need? What do children need from their teachers? Teachers who live out the complex name of God. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. But also aware that there are rules that need to be enforced that are real. Or think of our church community the special place where we come together to really to get to know God and to uh, exhibit the love that's proper for Christians to show to each other. Uh, I think we have to especially keep that in mind here, that in the church community, yes, we have to exhibit compassion, grace, love, generosity of spirit, kindness. But at the same time, always recognizing that, yes, there are rules. God has given rules, and he does enforce the rules in his time and his place. Or think of your workplace. Many of us have worked with unbelieving colleagues, whatever our jobs happen to be. In relationship to our unbelieving colleagues, love, if we are to imitate the compassionate, gracious side of God, we have to reach out in real love. That means real relationships with our colleagues, our coworkers in the office or business. But at the same time, we're aware that uh, God has set some rules. Uh, and in his own time and way, he will enforce them. And therefore, we'll be very careful about the sins that so often go with the workplace today. So we need to learn to imitate, to enact, to put into, pro into motion a lifestyle that imitates the complex character of God 
in all the places where we live our lives, in home, school, church, business, wherever other place you might be. We probably have a lot to learn there, a lot to improve in terms of how we do things. Just like there seems to be a tension between recognizing God as the one who forgives sins and also recognizing he's the one who punishes sin, there's a tension in us. How can we do both at the same time in terms of living out our Christian lives? It will not be easy. We probably have a lot to learn. We also have a lot to learn in terms of how to imitate, practice, and represent the complex name of God in relationship to our societies. Excuse me a moment. Especially those of us whose personal roots are in Europe or North America, we have to face the fact that the situation of Christianity and the churches is that we are often seen as discredited by the unbelieving world around us. This is a problem that's not only affecting the Catholic Church because of the many sexual scandals they've had in the last generation, it also affects us as Protestants. The world around us sees us as discredited in the sense that there's no reason to pay any attention to what they have to say. Uh, it's more of a problem for Christians and churches in the West North America and in Europe than it is for Christians in other continents. In other continents, the problem seems to be much smaller, and the churches are growing rapidly in many other continents, but not very much in North America or in Europe. Now, there are surely many dimensions of the problem, and surely cannot solve them, but part of it has to do with how we have portrayed and represented God. Uh, our churches have not, have pro and we as individuals and our spokespeople have probably not done a very good job of representing God in his complexity. It's the God of compassion and grace, but also the holy God who enforces his law. We probably have a lot to learn here. Um, because we're not, I think, imitating and reflecting and representing God in his complex nature well, People think our message is not worth listening to. There's nothing attractive about the Christian message. There's nothing attractive about our communities and our churches that makes people say, oh, that's what I need. That what they have going on in the church there, that's what really needs, that's what I need because it's the deepest longing in my heart to have that kind of experience. People aren't saying that very often. So I believe we have a problem that we have misrepresented God. Uh, stated negatively, too often the public, visible acts and words of churches and Christians have not fully reflected simultaneously the love of God and the holiness or justice of God. So part of what we need to do, I believe, to see a recovery of the credibility of Christianity in the West today is exactly what we see here. To get to know God in his complexity and to reflect that in all that we say and do. We can also state it positively, that the simultaneous public reflection of the love of God, the grace, mercy, forgiveness of God, joined with a deep awareness of God's holiness, I think that will help make the Christian faith, make Christianity attractive to people in our time. And this is not only something for official spokespeople of the church, of uh, whom there are not so many. Most of us will be in situations where we are just about the only spokesperson for Christ or for the church that other people will get to see and get to hear, get to talk about. Uh, and frequently we don't 
we often don't get our message right. We often are, I'm afraid, misrepresenting God a little bit. Now, I, I frequent a, a fitness center just a couple hundred meters from our home here. Uh, I think I'm the only American grandfather who goes there. I'm also one of the few Christians in the place. And I've begun to think about how am I representing God in the fitness center, uh, talking with the guys. Do they see and hear, they, they probably know I'm a Christian, they've probably figured that out, but do they see and hear from me a balanced representation of who God is and his complexity? Or do they, are they getting a one-sided view of Christianity from how, what I say and do in the fitness center when I'm working out with the other guys there? I think I have a lot to learn there, too. We need to learn how to hail God's name, not take his name in vain, in the middle of the unbelieving world in which God has placed us. We have to learn how to talk about both his grace and mercy, but also his holiness and justice to get this right. So we have a lot to learn. Uh, in our time, one of the things that's happening that we probably don't talk about a lot at church, is how many people are turning away from Islam. If you want to do something interesting sometime, Google, why are people leaving Islam? You'll find some interesting websites. One of the reasons people are leaving Islam in large numbers today is because of the blasphemy laws. I, I've read the reports of ex-Muslims telling about that this is the, all the ugliness related to the blasphemy laws is what drove them out of Islam, some of them immigrating to other countries so that they would have the freedom to get out of Islam. Uh, they see that many people are killed, many others are injured, lives are ruined because of the laws against blasphemy in Islam. That is costing them their credibility. If we want to recover our real credibility as Christians in the middle of the world we live in, part of what we need to do is to get to know God in his complexity and then represent him in that balanced complexity in all that we say and do, in our worship relating to God, in our families, in the church, in the business place, and in relation to the world around us. So what I would just lay before you this morning is that we especially need the help of the Holy Spirit to do this. To understand God and his complexity and to represent God in a way that's not one-sided, we, we can't do that on our own. We are going to especially need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand the word, to understand God, to be honest in our relationship with God, but honest in the way we relate to each other in, in all the communities in which God has placed us. So I would like us to close now with prayer. I'm going to especially pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us again and anew, that we would learn to know God better in his complexity, to learn that we would know how to not take his name in vain or misuse his name, but rather to represent his name properly in the several places where he has put us. So let's pray together. Father, the first thing I would pray is that by your word and your Holy Spirit, you would teach us to know you. Uh, I confess, Lord, that I've often had a one-sided view of who you are. I think most of us have. Help us to know you as you revealed yourself to Moses. 
And then, Father, help us to be transformed into that image that we become people who genuinely reflect and represent you, that you are the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. But also, you do not forget sin. You do punish the wicked. Help us to understand the gospel of Christ more deeply, that that's where your love and your holiness meet, and that we can stand before you forgiven in Christ, not because you have forgotten your rules that you punished sin, but because he was punished for us. Help us by your Holy Spirit. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us anew, that we would be empowered to represent you properly in all the places where you have put us in this world. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would do something in our midst that's honest and real so that we would become the kind of people, the kind of communities that are attractive to a world that doesn't know what it's looking for. Empower us anew by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.